This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, good morning Anchor Church. It is good to see you here today. My name is Matt, lead pastor here at Anchor, part of the Erskineville Gospel Community or one of the three gospel communities that meet in Erskineville these days, which is great. It's really good to see you here this morning, especially if you're new, visiting, welcome. Hope you are really blessed. We really do hope you stay forever. Um, This is a family. We're a big family here at Anchor, and um, we'd love to welcome you if you're new. So please do come to the Connect course on the 14th of August. We'd love to see you there. Uh, A couple of quick things you would have noticed on your chair this morning is also our our triplets guide. Um, and uh, we've put a lot of work and effort into them. So please, please don't leave them there. Please take them home. That is a resource for you. Um, it's a really handy resource. You can stick that in your Bible. You can use that for your triplet. It's got the, the four questions in there. It's got the, the, um, the tree diagram, that training tool that Hope trains us with. So please take that along. Talk to your GC leaders about triplets. Triplets are really about what it looks like for us to make disciples. We're a church about making disciples and make disciples and make disciples. And that doesn't just happen by sitting in a pew on a Sunday or a, a red chair. We don't really have pews. Uh, a comfy red chair or, or attending a small group midweek. It really looks like life on life. And so triplet is the, the most intimate context where that happens, where you can be known, where you can know each other and where you can apply the gospel specifically to someone's uh, circumstance and heart and wrestles and struggles. And so um, I'm, in, I'm in two triplets, actually. I'm in one with uh, Dave and Aiden. It's been a, a long-standing triplet, and I'm also in a triplet with uh, two other guys, James and James, from my gospel community. So um, triplets are amazing. So uh, if you're not in one, we'd encourage you to get in one. And we all know how, how amazing hope is. And so do not miss that training on uh, the, the 13th of August um, she does such a brilliant job. So if you want to find out more about triplets, if you want to be equipped to be in one, then don't miss that course. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to talk about quickly this morning is uh, Dylan mentioned that we need some extra toddlers helpers. Now that's because three of our four toddlers teachers are mums who are pregnant. And uh, so they're about to have babies in the next few weeks. And so we need to replace some of those mums. But it's not just about filling a vacant spot. We, we, we want people who love kids and feel called to do this. Um, Our vision here is making disciples. And really what toddlers is is about is making really little, cute disciples of Jesus. Um, As such a wonderful privilege to do that. And uh, there are fewer ministries at Anchor that are more significant and important than this one as we partner with parents in seeking to nurture the faith of our young ones from Uh, our our, um, little kids in toddlers to our our kids in primary school program. And so please um, consider doing that if you're not serving in a ministry or if you would like to serve in that uh, that way, then we would love to hear from you. Uh, Please talk to Arnaldo this morning. He's down the front here. He would love to chat to you about that. Such a significant ministry. We also need um, helpers for our creche program. So part of the creche program is that... um, as, as we continue to grow as a church, there just becomes more and more needs. And we've got heaps of mums who are in here with their kids. And um, so that is available for our mums, nursing mums, mums who can leave their kids there and listen to a sermon, and dads who can listen to a sermon for, for a whole 40 minutes without being distracted. What a, an amazing thing for a parent who's not done that for 12 months. 
you, you don't understand how significant that can be for someone. So if you are uh, passionate about kids, then please talk to Ronaldo about that. We would love to, um, we'd love to get you plugged in. Um, well, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8 this morning. Is that it? Did, have I said everything I wanted to say? I think so. I'm a bit scattered. We've all had laryngitis this week in the Sparks home, and I think I'm the last person to go down. So uh, I've had lots of texts this morning saying, I'm praying for your voice. So let's, uh, you can pray now that my voice holds up. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 8 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go to Acts chapter 8. We're going to go from verse 4 to 25. We look at this really significant moment as the gospel goes from um, this is the first moment the gospel breaks outside of the Jewish people, Jerusalem, Judea, and today we're looking at that move to Samaria. So Luke cha- uh, Acts chapter 8, if you've got a Bible, you can go there. But I wanted to start off um, with this. I don't know if this is just me, if anyone else ever experiences this sense of anxiety, but every time I plug my phone into my computer to back it up, I have this moment of freak out because I, I don't quite understand what my Mac does with my, my phone but it always makes me nervous because when it plugs in, it, all these warnings come up. You know, it wants to take all of my photos and put them in iPhoto and then wipe them all or keep some and do this and do that. And, and then it wants to do my apps and, and, uh, and, and everything else that's on my phone. And I'm always freaking out that I'm going to end up losing all of these important things on my phone. Just me? Any, so, I, all right, I take it that I'm getting kind of a bit old and technophobic and don't quite understand what's happening, but... What's that, what that is called is called syncing, right? Where you sync your phone and there's different ways of doing that. One way of syncing is that everything that's on your phone and everything that's on your computer are blended together and mashed together so that everything's on all of your devices. That's one version of syncing. Another version is where you take all of what's on one device and complete, it completely replaces what is on another device. Now, all of you tech guys can correct me if that's, if that's a really ignorant understanding of what syncing looks like, but I just tend to get a bit nervous when, I'm, when I plug my phone into my computer, and I realize I need to do that more often because when you don't, you lose everything, so back up your phone. But I was also thinking about how this works in the context of, of, um, of dog breeding. Now, again, I'm not a, I'm not a vet scientist, but... Um, there's blending and syncing and hybriding that occurs in the breeding of dogs, right? And so you take one pure breed dog and another pure breed dog and you, you crossbreed them and you get a crossbred dog or a hybrid dog. I don't even know what it is these days, but there are a number of really interesting names for these dogs. So when you cross a Labrador and a Poodle, you get a Labradoodle. Or when you cross a Mini Schnauzer and a Poodle, you get a Schnoodle. When you cross a pug and a beagle, you get a puggle. And this one's my favorite one, and uh, it's almost too naughty to say, but you cross a golden retriever and a poodle, and you get a golden doodle. (laughs) And there's way more, and um, I'm sure you could probably just make some up, uh, uh, because it seems like what they do with these things. But there's a big difference between a purebred and a crossbreed or a hybrid dog. One is pure in its ancestry and origin, and one is mixed and blended and synced. And as we come to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we're faced with this question of what is going to happen when the gospel crosses a cultural and geographical boundary and moves from Judea and Jerusalem into Samaria. Will we find sinking and blending of faith and culture? 
Or will we find a purity of the gospel like we have seen happening so far? Now, in the case of Samaria, this is vitally important to their story, to their narrative. And this is crucial to the ongoing mission of the gospel that God has said will go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So the context is, we left off last week. The very first martyr was murdered. Stephen was murdered for his blasphemous vision of Jesus, who stood as a witness to receive the first martyr. And we saw that persecution broke out against the church and that the church was scattered as Paul went from house to house to imprison Christians. And the Christians fled Jerusalem and they left and they resettled in the regions around Jerusalem. And one of those regions is Samaria and Philip is there. And so we pick our story up in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, as Philip begins to preach the gospel to Samaria for the first time. This is a significant moment. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we get to that moment. So if you've got a Bible, go to Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. And I think you can follow along. Yes, there we go. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many, of, of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now interestingly, John's important because uh, in the Luke chapter 9, I think it is, Jesus sends the disciples out um, into Samaria and John goes and the Samaritans reject the gospel and John comes back and he says, Jesus, should we call down thunder or lightning from heaven to destroy them? Jesus says, just chill, John. This, we're not about thunder and lightning from heaven. We're about preaching the good news. Of, and so it's interesting that John goes when he hears that the Samaritans have received the gospel. He's there. So Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had been given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone on whom I may lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that none of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story of the gospel as it goes out and radically transforms cultures and cities and regions. God, we thank you that your plan has been unfolding since the beginning of time, that the name of Jesus would be lifted up, that your glory would cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. God, we thank you that we see a small snippet of that this morning. And God, we marvel at the bigness, the vastness, and the wonder of your plan and your purposes, that we are caught up in that, that we get to play a part. Oh, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, still our hearts, help us hear you, convict us by your spirit, change and transform us, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen. So we see here this momentous occasion as the gospel goes from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria for the first time and a number of Samaritans, it's said there, believe. They hear the gospel, they hear Philip proclaiming this gospel of Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. They see the signs and the wonders, people are getting healed, demons are getting cast out of people and there are a number of people in Samaria who believe and are baptised. And Luke chooses to focus his attention on just one of these Samaritan men, a man by the name of Simon, who was a magician and had long, it said, I don't know if you noticed the repetition of that phrase, attention, held their attention, captivated their attention. Simon had their attention. People paid attention to him. He wowed the city of Samaria and they deified him as godlike because he was great and had great power. Now, When Simon gets saved, he is amazed by something. He is amazed by the power that he sees. He sees Philip performing signs and wonders and he is amazed. You see this contrast, this shift of amazement. Initially, the people are amazed at Simon, but when Philip arrives, they're amazed at Philip and what he is doing. They're amazed at these wonders and Simon knows genuine, true power when he sees it. But the thing that really blew Simon away, the thing that he really desired in all of this, was the type of power that came when Peter and John arrived to Samaria and laid their hands on these new believers and prayed that they would receive the Spirit and they received the Spirit. Now we're not told how we know that they received the Spirit or didn't have the Spirit. And chances are what we see happening here is a, an exact replica of what happened in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit is received and the gift of tongues is given. Now we don't know for sure, but that's probably what's taken 
uh, what's happened in this occurrence, that there is some visible sign that as Peter and John lay their hands on them, they've received the Holy Spirit. Everyone knows, everyone recognizes that that's the case. And Simon sees that and he thinks, now that's the type of power I want to have. This is what he says in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter does his own version of get behind me, Satan. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the power of God with money. You thought you could buy it. You thought you could obtain, sorry, not the power of God, the gift. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You cannot buy. You cannot buy what the gospel offers you. It's free. It's a gift. It's received by faith. The Spirit is given to those who have faith in Jesus. You cannot buy this. And so Peter calls Simon out here and he, he perceives his heart. He perceives that what Simon is really interested in is not so much forgiveness that Jesus has to offer, but attention. The attention that was taken away from him as Philip arrived and began to preach the gospel. Simon is interested in power. He's interested in glory. And so Peter calls him out and says, repent. You see, in the end, what Simon has intended to do here is blend or sink this newfound faith that Samaria has just received with his old ways. He, he really wants to just add Jesus to the list of magic tricks that he's got. He wants this superior power to add to the power that he's already had. He's blending But as we read this account, you might think, well, hang on a second. Why is it that there is a delay in the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit? What is going on there? If you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter makes a promise. He says this, 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what happens here in Acts chapter 8. Why does this happen in two stages? They repent, they believe, they're baptized, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Now some suggest that this is a pattern that we can see. A pattern that should be followed by every person who comes to faith in Jesus. That you would firstly be baptized with water when you become a Christian. And then at some later point down the stage, you would be baptized with the Holy Spirit as someone laid hands on you. In fact, uh, a lot of the, the tradition behind uh, confirmation comes from this. That someone in the apostolic line of Peter needs to confirm that you have the faith that you would receive the Holy Spirit. And so some would try and build a pattern out of this, that there is this twofold stage to coming to faith. There are two stages of Christianity that you are baptized in water, but more importantly, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that's exactly what's happening here. 
And we don't really have the time to unpack this. This is a sermon I preached in the Holy Spirit series called The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can go back and search for that online, download that, listen to that. I think it was an hour and 10 minutes. It was way too long, but it covers all of this. So I think the best answer as to what is happening here in Acts chapter 8 is that God has intentionally delayed the giving of the Spirit in this moment for the sake of preserving unity. You see, there is a historic and momentous divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. There is hostility that has existed for centuries between these two nations. So much so that if you were a Jew and needed to travel from the north to Jerusalem, the fastest route would be to go directly through Samaria. But because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they took a longer route and went around to avoid the people and the nation in the city. There was so much hatred between these two groups of people that there is a real potential risk of division entering the early church in this moment. Will the, Gentile, will the, the Jews receive the Samaritans? Will the Samaritans receive the Jews? Will they be brothers and sisters in Christ or will the Samaritans simply become this little sect within Christianity? This is a momentous occasion. And so the apostles come, John of all people comes, Peter and John come and they lay hands and they receive the Spirit as a way of verifying, not just some peripheral person to this movement, Philip, one of the deacons, none no, of the, the elders, the leaders of this movement, Peter and John themselves come down, lay hands, see with their own eyes that the Spirit has been received in the same way that the apostles came into the kingdom, the same way that all of the, the, the Jewish brothers and sisters who have heard the gospel up until this point came into the kingdom. The Samaritans too have been included in and they verify this moment. There is a genuine inclusion here. There is a reuniting of God's people that had once been torn apart. Now that is huge. That is hugely significant in the narrative of this story because the Samaritans had a history of blended worship of God. They had been sinking their faith with the faith of the nations around them for centuries. The Samaritans are a blended people racially. God's people who have been living in the, the northern part of the kingdom had been intermarrying with the nations around them and they had diluted the purity of the bloodline of the people of Israel. And so they were a blended nation racially, but they were also a blended nation religiously. That they sought to worship Yahweh, God, but at the same time they sought to worship all of the other nations around them. They're a blended, sinking nation. And so what I want to do this morning is give you another history lesson. I know last week was a, was a massive just run through the Old Testament story as Stephen rehearsed uh, God's presence in the temple and the law through Moses. And so this morning I want to give you another history lesson. And so I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because Bible history is amazing. So here we go, a little history lesson for you. Because of Solomon's sin, King Solomon, because of his sin, the punishment that God sent was there was a division 
in the 12 tribes of Israel. There were the northern tribes and the southern tribes of Israel and there was division that occurred. And the line of David, the Davidic rule, ruled the southern tribes of Judah and then the northern tribes, the kings of the northern tribes placed Jeroboam as their king over their tribes. And um, Samaritans are seen as the result of the idolatrous decisions and implementations that Jeroboam made as a king. So come back to 1 Kings chapter 12 with me. 1 Kings 12, 26. This is Jeroboam's leadership leading Israel into idolatry. He says this, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made, what? Two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Such a long journey. So much effort. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now we've seen that before, haven't we? It's a repetition of the sin of Aaron and the people as they waited for Moses as he was receiving the law on Mount Sinai in their impatience. They melt their gold and ask Aaron to make them a God to worship. And here Jeroboam repeats the sin of his forefathers and he blends the worship of Yahweh with the worship of idols. Jeroboam establishes a temple and a priesthood so that the people of the north don't have to take that pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to worship God and offer sacrifices at the place where he ordained it should happen. And his fear is that if they would do that, that they would reject him as king. And so in his selfishness, he pulls the people away from their God and establishes idolatry amongst God's people in the north. A little bit later on in 1 Kings 16, 18, somewhere, one of those two, another king purchases the land and begins to build the city of Samaria in that very region. And so the foundation of the city of Samaria is founded upon the idolatrous sin of a king who in his pride turned the people away from God to preserve his rule. Now that's not the only context of blended worship that occurs for the city of Samaria. Because a bit later on, God's punishment on his people for rejecting him and their idolatry is that he sends the Assyrians to come in and completely wipe out God's people, take them out of the land into exile. And what happens is, uh, they send all of the nations around them to populate the north of Israel. And God sends lions to attack these people because they're not worshipping him in his place the way they should. And so this is this, the Assyrians' solution. A reinstatement of the priesthood. Have a look at 2 Kings 17 verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Cathar, from Avar, from Hamath, from Seravaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possessions of Samaria and lived in its cities. 
And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria did not know the Lord of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they did not know the law of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. So one of the priests of God's people of the temple, send him back, go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria and came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in their shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made and every nation in the city in which they lived. And then down to verse 33. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations among whom they had been carried away. You see, there's context to Peter's razor-sharp analysis of Simon's newfound so-called faith. Peter knows the story. He knows the heritage. He knows the history. Simon is acting in the exact same way that his forefathers have been acting since 1 Kings 12. Seeking to blend the worship of God with his own faith, his own magic, his own ways. Sinking the old and the new together so that across all of his devices it's the same. Magic and Jesus is what Simon was really after. Magic and magic, really. The theological term for this process is called syncretism. It's a missiological term that missionaries talk about all the time as they take the good news of Jesus across a culture. One of the dangers is that the culture will simply blend this faith with what they've had there in the past. And there is a significant difference between syncretism and good contextualization. And so I want to give you an example of that from some of my favorite missionaries, John and Betty Sharp, who is Matt, Matt Sharp's mum and dad. Um, and Matt was born as a missionary kid amongst the Tugutu tribe, which was a crazy, cannibalistic, tobacco-eating, loincloth-wearing, tribal, unreached people group. And his mum and dad took their family and built a hut in the jungle and preached the gospel to them. And they lived among this tribal group for a number of years before they ever began to speak any message of the good news to them. And after many years of living there and establishing relationship, they began to invite the Tugutu people to come and hear the story of God. They would begin with Genesis and just walk this tribal people group through the story of God. And the people said, is that church? We don't want to go to church. And John, in his wisdom, said, well, what do you think church is? He said, well, you've got to wear nice clothes. You can't wear your loincloth. You can't, you can't um, chew betel nut and spit it out on the floor. And our kids can't urinate wherever they want on the floor during church. And John said, well, if that's your version of church, if that's the thing that's going to prevent you from coming to church and hearing the gospel, then wear your loincloth, chew betel nut, spit it on the floor, and let the kids pee wherever they want. That is contextualization. Let's not make any of those things an obstacle. Let's not impose Western European culture on to a culture that needs to hear about Jesus. Let's major on the message. 
But what they didn't do was say, and as far as it goes with your cannibalistic tendencies that you've had in the past, you can keep eating people and worshipping Jesus. That's all good, right? They, they didn't do that. I don't even know if they were cannibals. Matt, are you, are you here? Were they cannibals? They were pretty brutal anyway. I don't think Matt's here. Um, but that, that's not what they said, right? They said, here is, a, here is a line in the sand. You cannot blend faith in Jesus and your old ways. You cannot blend voodoo and the gospel. That is syncretism. And so the Samaritans have been doing this for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so as the gospel comes to this new geographic area, this is a vastly significant moment. What will God do? How will the people respond? What will happen? Well, we ought to know what should happen. God told us what was going to happen. Because God had a very clear plan for the people of Samaria. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel prophesied that God would join his divided people back together. And in this beautiful image, God tells him, take two sticks and write the names of the tribes of the north and the south on the two separate sticks and then join them together as a symbol of my plan and purpose for my people that the people who were once divided will be brought back together. This is what it says in Ezekiel 37, verse 21, I think. 21. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be their king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Isn't that incredible? So as we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and remind ourselves of the plan that Jesus said was going to take place, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. Whoa, all of a sudden that carries a lot more significance, doesn't it? This isn't just a cultural and geographic boundary that the gospel is leaping over. This is a momentous purpose marker that God had a plan And the sin and idolatry of Israel did not thwart it or destroy it. That he had a plan. A plan to reunite his people. You see how crazy big God's plans are? That's phenomenal. It's crazy. Here's the deal. You'll never understand the New Testament with wonderful richness until you understand the Old When you understand the story of the Old Testament, it makes things like this come alive because all of a sudden you realize there's so much significance to this moment. That God had a plan. That he had a plan in the very moment that Jeroboam in his heart 
to preserve his own rule, led the people of God astray into idolatry, God had a plan. As the kingdom was torn in two, God had a plan. And you and I are a part of that plan, that incredible plan that God has forged in his heart before the foundations of the earth to lift up the name of Jesus. We are a part of something significant, vastly significant. Nations, kings, rulers, epochs and eras are all a part of God's beautiful plan that his glory would cover the face of the earth, that all tribes and nations and tongues would bow their knee to Jesus and worship him. And you and I get to play a part in that plan. And here's the deal. The plan's not over. God's not done. He's not finished. He's got more, more work for us to do. He's got more for this city, for this nation, for our world in our time that has turned its back on God and worshipped idols. You know, this story tells me that the gospel has no middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. There's no, there's no blending that can take place. There's no sinking. Following Jesus is an all or nothing thing. And I think the Thessalonians are a beautiful example of the type of transformation that ought to take place. Because Paul says that their testimony is that they turned from idols and worship the true and living God. That's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does. It turns people from idols to worship the true and living God. The gospel radically, radically, radically changes us. Not just adding Jesus, not just sinking a bit of this faith with the current thing that you've got going on, this is a, a total wipe of the old and a replacement. It's that version, right? Where you plug your phone in and everything that's on your computer wipes the phone and puts new stuff on there. That's what the gospel does to us. And yet the reality is we don't often do it. We're often guilty of the same things that Samaria had been doing for years, that Israel had been doing for years. A bit of Jesus... And a bit of star signs, a bit of Jesus and a bit of tarot card, a bit of Jesus and a bit of something else. Yeah, I'll pray, but only as a last resort. Heaven is my security, but so is my savings and my super and my house and my investment portfolio. Jesus is enough as long as I've got X, Y, and Z. Blending, sinking. Following Jesus is all or nothing. And there's no sinking of the old self and the new self. Paul says that when we come to faith in Jesus, we're completely new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. And the good news is that Jesus pursues idol worshippers. He pursues those who have sought to blend their faith. He forgives. And the story of that is the story of a Samaritan woman that Jesus met in John chapter 4. 
As he was taking a break at a well in the middle of the day, a shady woman of that city came out to draw water at a time where there would be no one else that could interrupt her, talk to her, have a conversation with her, or know her story. And Jesus is there in John chapter 4. And he has an encounter with this woman who is a Samaritan. She lives in the city of Samaria. Her heritage is that she is a Samaritan. And not only does she have a blended race, she has a blended faith. And she is a woman who is perpetually moving from man to man. And Jesus encounters her at this well, asks for a drink. And in a way that only Jesus does, reveals to her, that he is the one who can satisfy her deepest longing and thirst. The very thing that she was looking for is found in Jesus. That he will give her water to drink that will satisfy the longings of her soul. This woman is radically transformed by Jesus and she runs back into the city of Samaria and she begins to preach She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever knew. And the people come out and Jesus preaches the good news to the city of Samaria. And in John chapter 4 verse 39 it says this, Many Samaritans, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, that's Jesus, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. There is hope. There is hope for a people who had been written off There is hope for us, there is hope for our city that the good news of Jesus, the gospel can so radically transform our hearts and our lives and our minds and turn us from worshipping idols to the true and living God. Maybe you find yourself today in that moment of wrestling with compromise. The temptation of bringing the old self back. There's no sitting on the fence. Christ calls us to repent of that, to walk away and trust him entirely. But maybe for you, you, you're not really sure where you stand with this Jesus stuff and you, you're sitting on the fence. You're like, well, maybe I can stay here. Maybe this is a good place to be. I'll sit on the fence. I'll enjoy a little bit of this Jesus stuff, but not so much that I don't have to change the way I'm living. The gospel is an all or nothing message. And I want to say to you today, there is no fear in letting go. Jesus is trustworthy. His plans are magnificent. And his intent is to set you free in the worship of our God. That is good news. It's good news that we need to hear today, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. And we're going to respond to this good news in a number of ways. We're going to respond in worship as we declare the praises of God. We're going to respond in prayer. And our prayer team is going to be available to the sides. You can identify one of our prayers because they're wearing an orange lanyard around their neck and they would love to pray for you. 
If there is anything that you need prayer for this morning, if there is a a sin that you have been harboring that you need to repent and bring before God, they would love to pray for you. If you want to stop sitting on the fence and say, you know what, today is the day. Today is the day I'm all in. I'm not going to sit on the fence any longer. I'm not going to seek to try and worship Jesus and this other stuff. I'm all in. Our prayer team would love to lead you in a prayer of confession and faith as you receive Jesus. And we're going to respond in the Lord's Supper. There are four stations, two at the front, two on either side of the room here with bread and grape juice. Symbols of what Jesus has done. That his body and his blood were broken and shed, torn apart to reunite God's people and bring them back together. Across any geographic, racial and religious boundary. That we could have an eclectic people here that would worship Jesus from all sorts of backgrounds, from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds. Because this is a small picture of what God's beautiful purpose and plan is. Every tribe, tongue and nation worshipping around the throne in the Lamb. And so we're going to respond by doing that. That's a, a meal for those of you who love Jesus, who call yourself a follower. We invite you to come and dip the bread into the grape juice. Eat it, remembering the good news of the gospel. So I'm going to pray. We're going to celebrate. We're going to worship that we are a part of God's good, perfect, wonderful, magnificent, world-changing plan. Yeah? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you, God, that your plan has spanned epochs and eras and millennia and centuries. God, we thank you that your plan is good. We thank you that you have been patient in it. We thank you that you call us out of our darkness, out of our idolatry, out of our sin to worship you. We pray where we find ourselves leaning back into the old ways, seeking to blend. We pray that you'd help us to walk away from that knowing that you are enough, that you're trustworthy. For those who find themselves sitting on the fence this morning, God, I pray that you would help them to see that there is no fear in letting go and running to the arms of Jesus and experiencing your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. God, we thank you that you're a God who invites us to be part of your magnificent purposes. We pray that you'd help us to be your light, your alternative city within a city here, for your glory, for the sake of the city around us and for our joy. We pray it in Jesus' strong name and God's people said, Amen.